With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to TNTradio.live. You're listening to Chris Smith on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hey, good to have your company. We are going to get to Senator Holly Hughes in Canberra, in Parliament House shortly, and then have a look at the economy, not just the economy in Australia, but uh, the US economy, and in particular, who gained and who lost from the pandemic. There's a new report out at the moment from a US research company, which I think is quite fascinating. But meanwhile, two people accused of burning down a Wendy's have accepted plea deals. Now, does that ring a bell? Yes, it rings a bell. Black Lives Matter and the mayhem that ensued and the burning down of Wendy's? Well, that location was where an Atlanta police officer shot and killed Rayshard Brooks back in 2020. Court records show Chisholm, Kingston and Natalie White were both sentenced to five years probation. Probation. This is from the 11 Live website. They also have to pay, wait for it, a $500 fine and complete 150 hours of community service work. I wonder whether they'll turn up. In addition to Kingston and White, John Wade was also indicted for allegedly setting the fire back in January of this year. Brooks's death sparked some of the most searing protests around Atlanta, as many of us would recall. Crowds gathered at the Wendy's on University Avenue in Atlanta on June 12, 2020, after Brooks was shot by now ex-Atlanta police officer Garrett Rolfe as he ran from him after grabbing his taser and discharging it back towards the officer. Brooks was then allegedly kicked and stepped on as he lay dying in Wendy's parking lot. After the fire at Wendy's, the gutted property became both a location for internal protests and peace. In the days following the fire, armed people moved into the area and set up blockades, making it difficult to get in and around the neighbourhood. But let me repeat, two people accused of burning down that Wendy's have had a very soft landing, both sentenced to five years probation and ordered to pay a $500 fine. That's about as soft as you could get. Let's go to our talkback lines. If you want to uh, have your say from the United States or Canada, you can do so by using this number, one 888 From the UK, where it's just gone 5 a.m., 033-0024-1026. And from Australia or New Zealand, 1-800-670-310. Andrew McGowan, one of our regular callers, uh, he went back to Parliament House today with all his paperwork for the companion dogs that weren't allowed in about a week ago, and he's decided to ring back and give us an update. Andrew, what happened? Smithy, the uh, parliamentary security were working really hard to get me in, and the AFP were working really hard to keep me out. And they What were the out. AFP trying to keep you out for? Because uh, last time on the 19th of September, I, sorry, October, I held a 11-hour vigil on the lawn of Parliament House 
that was the fifth anniversary of Scott Morrison's rubbish apology to us survivors of abuse. And I yep. made a complaint against an officer who, for the first time in all the years, seven years now I've been coming to Parliament, 20, over 25 times I've had my dogs into Parliament House, including on Scott Morrison's lounge as Prime Minister, kissing him on Valentine's Day 2019. You've seen the photos. Never before. Uh, it is total retaliation because I made a complaint against an officer who smirked and made me feel like crap being a survivor of child sexual abuse. So your file was marked after that day, and when you came back today, you're saying they did everything they could to make sure you couldn't get in. Well, last week they grabbed hold of me. I was inside Parliament House within two minutes, and I made the mistake of, of asking how my complaint was going against an officer. And they wanted all my details and my date of birth. I said, I'm not identifying you. My barrister has told me never to identify to the police. And within two minutes, an inspector came out, ordered his two goons to grab hold of me and escort me out. Now, I've emailed you to today, but it's yeah. saying it's queued. I have, emailed, I have issued a statement of intent to litigate through the Human Rights Commission to both the AFP and the parliamentary uh, security. They are but the parliamentary force. security, let me get this straight, parliamentary security were helpful. Absolutely. And I, I said to them, this is not about you. This is about the AFP. But it is a joint operation between both the AFP and the uh, parliamentary security. They have been yeah. nothing but professional. Now I have So you weren't allowed in today? No, I was not. They but you had all I your paperwork. Have, they said I didn't have enough paperwork. They said that I didn't have government ID for my dogs. Now, this is an imaginary department with imaginary IDs because under the current legislation, under the 1992 National Disability Discrimination Act, Sections 9 and Section 54, it says that you can train your own assistance animal. I now train dogs for other people. Two of my dogs today were in training for other people. Right. Now, I have met with the senior advisor to Amanda Rishworth, the Minister for Department of Social Security, which this comes yep. under, and yep. the lady from Department of Social Services who goes to COAG to coordinate with every state to try and get a, 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 the regulations to be uniform throughout Australia. ACT doesn't even have legislation for assistance animals. Did you know that we don't even have a disability liaison officer within Parliament House to assist people with disabilities when they have situations like this? Are you, are you serious? I am. Mate, I'm as serious as a heart attack, and it is why I am going to run as a Senate candidate in the 2025. Now, I'm talking to a party of a guy you were talking to last Friday. I'm not going to make any names because it's early days but I am willing to run under somebody else's ticket because this is nonsense. We don't have a Minister for Disability. One in five Australians, Smithy, has a disability. A lot of them, like me, are invisible. And more and more, with PTSD, right, it's invisible. You can't yeah, see Yeah, but Bill Shorten is, is the unofficial disability minister. Mate, I rang his office and they hung up on me last week. Oh, did they? And it's not the first time. 
Hey, listen, can you do me a favor? Can you send me an email on the detail, some of the detail that you've just told me? Because I haven't had a chance to write it all down, but I, I would love to get it written all down so I can ask some questions behind the scenes as well. Can you do that? Absolutely. And I'd love to talk to you off here and have a coffee with you when I'm in Sydney next week and discuss this further, mate. Well, we might be able to do that. We might be able to do that. Look, I'd look all right, Andrew, to hang in there, relax, just write it all down, do what you have to do. But keep control of the situation and don't let them push you around. Mate, I won't. I'm, I'm a stubborn bugger and I'm sitting by a creek and I sent you a photo of that. But that's cute too. But we'll get it to you, brother. And All right. Smitty, let me say to you and your listeners, Merry Christmas and we will win. People All right. Merry Christmas to you, country. mate. Thank you very much Thank for your call. Thank you. There you go. Couldn't get in with his companion dogs because he didn't or they, they didn't have a government pass. Or a government certificate. I'll get to the bottom of it and find out what it really was about. Because if it's about him lodging a complaint, they have no right to prevent him from walking into Parliament House today. This is Chris Smith on TNT Radio. Getting straight to the facts. Enough with the lies. We need facts. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. I've got Liberal Party Senator for New South Wales, Holly Hughes, with me right now. Holly Hughes, welcome to TNT Radio. Hey, Smithy, how are you going? I'm doing very well. Now, I saw a speech from the Senate overnight. I think it was Matt Canavan giving a speech, and I'm nearly sure I saw you in the Speaker's chair um, orchestrating the unrepresentative swill. Was that you? I was sitting in the uh, Speaker's chair, in the President's chair. Uh, I've done it again today. So uh, there's a group of us that uh, do what we call chairs duties. So the President and the Deputy President don't sit in there all day. Uh, so we take it in turns to to look over the Senate and make sure it's behaving the way that it should. How difficult is that? You're on one side of the political spectrum. How difficult is it to be fair to the other side? Seriously. Uh, look, you know, the Senate generally, you know, is pretty collegiate in the way that we all work together on a number of committees. <laughs> you could have filled me. Well, yeah, question time, maybe not so collegiate. And i got to say, this government at the moment is just such a mess. It's very, very difficult to be sitting in the chamber with them. I mean, the the arrogance that they have while literally everything is falling apart around them is quite breathtaking. Uh, but, you know, we have standing orders when you're in the chair and you abide by them. So I pull up my side, I pull up the other side and uh, you do what needs to be done. Well, they're in deep trouble on a number of issues, but this one in particular, a violent sex offender released from immigration detention following last month's high court ruling has faced court on two charges of indecent assault. Afghan refugee Ali Yawa Yawari, who attacked three elderly women in 2013 and 14, indecently assaulting one of his victims in her home and hitting her with a walking stick was deemed a danger to the Australian community by a sentencing judge. He was one of two detainees charged over the weekend as the government scrambles to pass tough laws to place the most threatening offenders back behind bars. But it was always going to be too late, Holly. This was always going to happen. What a mess. Oh, look, absolutely. When you put 148 of the worst of the worst offenders back on the street, it was always a matter of time. And we've actually seen a third person charged today who's part of this cohort. So right. uh, 
This is just absolutely extraordinary incompetence being displayed by this government. Uh, we are actually debating in the moment in the Senate at the moment a migration bill that we don't actually even fully have yet uh, because the government had a go at question time saying, well, you know, we want to pass this bill, but we don't even have it. So we just put a motion up to bring on the debate straight away. Uh, Holly, they, they should have had that bill completed in ago. full while the High Court was still presiding over this. Absolutely. And, you know, the questions that are being asked, they released the majority of these people, all but one uh, was directed, you know, the, the High Court directed one detainee had to be released. Uh, the other 147 or so that they have released, the government's done so prior to getting the High Court reasons. So there is very good grounds that these people did not need to be released, that the High Court's reasoning did not apply to them. And right. so the fact that they have done this and sort of basically jumped the shark, have gone out uh, and released all these people. We heard that the man that was charged with sexual assault on the weekend was not wearing an electronic bracelet. So the, you know, have we been given the full information when they've said these people were being monitored? Because it appears not. Uh, this is an absolute mess of the government's making and they are absolutely scrambling. It is beyond disgrace that the House of Representatives are not here. So it is only the Senate in the building. And, uh, you know, we had Claire O'Neill last week saying no one was going home until this preventative measures bill was passed. They haven't even got the bill still, and it's Tuesday. <laughs> and the reps don't come back. So they're coming back tomorrow. But tomorrow is a condolence motion for, for Peter Murphy, who died this week, who's yeah. a sitting member. But as is uh, what happens when you do a condolence motion for a sitting member who has died in office, the House will adjourn uh, as soon as that condolence motion ends. So there will be no debate tomorrow. There will be no uh, presentation of the bill in the representatives tomorrow. Uh, the reps at this stage look like they're planning only to be here for Thursday. Uh, this is absolutely unforgivable. I don't even know where the Prime Minister is. Does anyone know where he is? Oh, amateur He's, hour, isn't it? Oh, he is beyond incompetent. I haven't seen Claire O'Neill pop her head up for a few days. There are two uh, ministers involved in this who should go today. Absolutely, absolutely. And it would appear that both her and Giles are in witness protection because I don't think anyone's, you know, cited them for the last yeah. couple of days. Yeah. Uh, and this is a mess, as I said, of their making, uh, yet they are continuing to put Australians and the Australian community at risk because of their failed uh, actions or their inaction. Yeah, and no doubt Alban Albanese is in one of those get smart cone of silence uh, places somewhere in Australia to keep away from the media. Glenn the truckie has phoned in for a question to you, Holly Hughes. Go ahead, Glenn. She's listening. Hey, Holly, I'm just wondering, as an Australian living in a so-called de democratic country and considering the Labor government is driving us into bankruptcy, destroying our sovereignty... Uh, flooding us with immigration. I work 17 hours a day and my wife's reduced to living in, uh, in a bedroom because it's all we can afford to cool because I can't make enough money working 17 hours a day every day of the week. Can you tell me in this democratic country, is it possible and what do we, the public, have to do to get this government sacked and removed? 
Well, Glenn, uh, it's a great question. I'm sure lots of Australians are asking it. We are a democracy and, and the election is when you'll be able to say goodbye to this government. But it is so important that you and others, and I mean, what you're going through is just awful and it's what so many Australians are going through. And we've got Minister Bowen over at COP28 at the moment uh, absolutely making an embarrassment of Australia mm. with his push on renewables, which is just going to keep costing more and more and more to, to call you home. And I mean, it is absolutely appalling in such a resource rich nation as Australia, who should have some of the lowest priced energy in the world, that this is what we've been reduced to. Uh, there, okay. The election, unfortunately, is not due till May 2025. But uh, with any luck, they'll, they'll go to an election a bit earlier and we can boot this mob out. Yeah, about oh, a year, an 18 month period to wait, Glenn. Here's the problem though, Chris. I'm not stupid. We can't afford to wait that long. Mm. Because if we wait another 18 months, this country will be destroyed. Let's mm. look at it realistically. Not only have you got that absolute moron Bowen destroying the electricity system, you've got Penny Wong destroying our agriculture. I come from farming stock. And I mm. understand not only is it going to push up the cost of food because they can't grow it because they don't have the water, it's also going to destroy all of those country towns that rely on agriculture. And for the yes. politicians to tell me that I've got to wait another 18 months, I'm sorry, we can't afford to wait 18 months in a democratic country. Why can't we have them removed now? Yeah, it's a very good question. I'm hearing your frustration, and right now they're on the seat of their pants uh, not coming out from under their desks, which shows how not only inept they are, but, of course, um, scared they are of facing the music. I've got to go to a quick break, Holly Hughes. Thank you, Glenn, for phoning in. We'll come back right after the break on TNT Radio. TNT Radio's Kate Shamarani. Don't stop taking prescription medication. Always go and see your indoctrinated GP, always. But with psychiatric drugs, you have to actually wean off them. They're very addictive and you have to wean off them. Now, I find all this really concerning. But what I cannot get my head around is the worst drug of all they just let it on the market all the time sugar 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 and then that's not even to bring in like msg monosodium glutamate and and i if i i can say you know you go into one of these garages and you see all the people going for food there's nothing to eat in there i very rarely can find anything to eat in any of these places and if you go into the supermarket there's only the first two aisles that have got real food the rest it, it's not food and i see what people buy I've covertly actually filmed people's trolleys, not them, don't get all excited, but I have filmed trolleys uh, to have a look what people are buying and it's shocking because what you eat determines what your brain's going to be like and your teenagers' brains do not stop developing till they're about 25 years of age. Kate Shimarani on TNT Radio. I'm just going to do a little voice I wanted to alleviate my pain. I also didn't want to be who I was. I always just felt like there was just something wrong with me and I was trying to figure it out and I used the internet to help me do that. Seemingly out of nowhere, we've suddenly seen a huge spike in media depictions and social media depictions of transgenderism. It's even reached the mainstream advertising world. The people who are consuming this are children, 13, 14, 15 years old, 
And it's so easy for them to literally be groomed. I just woke up one day, looked at myself in the mirror, and asked myself, what the heck am I doing? When trans-identified kids are referred to specialized gender clinics, they're often told that they're going to get comprehensive, multidisciplinary mental health assessments. We know that that's not true. I was easy to manipulate. The ideology that has become dominant at these clinics is that trans kids know who they are, and therefore to question them is completely taboo. My childhood was ruined. Who's there for their detransitioning? Nobody. Nobody would help me because they had more concerns of me reversing everything. Did this thing to alleviate this gender dysphoria that wasn't there before, but you made it into a problem, and now your body image issues are worse. That's not supposed to happen. What do we do now? D-Trans, the dangers of gender-affirming care. For more information, go to PragerU.com. Unbiased information. Honest and forthright. News without the misinformation. It doesn't matter what side you're from. What matters is what you say, the truthfulness behind it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. I've got Senator Holly Hughes with me, Liberal Party Senator from New South Wales. Holly, the Australian reports today that senior Labor and union figures are pushing the PM to lift the ban on nuclear power uh, as urban polling shows that city folk want cheaper and reliable energy before the priority being put on renewables. Is the penny beginning to drop for what is an ignorant Labor government? No, not at all. We debated this yesterday. They were all up. Nuclear is terrible. Nuclear is too expensive. We don't want nuclear. No, no, no. Renewable, renewable, renewable. Uh, they are absolutely and utterly deluded. And foolish, uh, according to Emmanuel Macron. Oh, look, and amongst others, amongst many, many other countries who have come to the table and realised that they are going to have to triple their nuclear output if they are to become anywhere close to their net zero ambitions. Now, you know, whether you're a net zero person or not, everyone agrees that we want less emissions, that a cleaner, greener, better environment is better for everybody. No one is in dispute of that. But this race to renewables that Chris Bowen has embarked on is just fanciful. Yeah. Uh, he's relying on battery storage when he puts all his renewables in. We've just had a car company yesterday recall over 1,500 EVs because their charging stations are a threat to life. Mm -hmm. We had an accident yesterday. Three men ended up in hospital, one with serious burns in Royal North Shore. After an electric bike, battery blew up in an apartment. These things are happening more and more often, and it's because the materials in these batteries are incredibly dangerous. Yeah. Yet they are obsessed on this anti-nuclear warpath. Now, what we're actually proposing is basically four words in the EPBC Act, our Environment and Biodiversity Act, which there's there's four words in it. And I think I have to remember, I think it's section 140, part A, part one. We'll believe you. Four words. Yeah, just trust me on that one. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. But there's four words there that say a nuclear power plant. Now, if we got rid of those four words from that act, it would then open up nuclear for the market to decide. Yeah. So no one on the coalition side is saying, let's go build a large power nuclear reactor here. Mm. Let's put a small modular you know, reactor here. We are adopting a technologically agnostic approach yep. to energy, all yep. of the above, everything should be on the table. Yep. Uh, but at the moment with this moratorium in place, the market in Australia cannot even entertain nuclear. Yep. 
And this is what has to change. It's immature, it's ignorant, it's arrogant. Look, if the Labor government was so confident in their argument that it's too expensive, too long a time, lead time to get it up and running, that there's all these issues around it, that there isn't going to be community buy-in, there won't be social licence for it, then let the market figure that out because, you know, you want it to be run by, you know, corporations, you want it to be run by commercial enterprises. Um, It's not going to be state-owned. And commercial enterprises are not going to invest in something that is, you know, ill-advised, money-losing, going to be unsuccessful. Um, And so if you get someone coming into the market, whether it is some of the small modular or the medium plants or, you know, even the larger plants that are now being reopened uh, across Japan and in Europe, you know, you're going to see the market be able to decide. And I think where they're also missing the point because they say, oh, there's no social licence for this stuff. You could put a nuclear power plant exactly where a, a coal mine that's ceased to, a, a coal-fired power station ceased to work anymore. Yep. You could put it there. These are communities who have had jobs and and their livelihoods based on energy for a really long time and worked in, in coal-fired power. They, I am sure, uh, and know of some of them, would absolutely happily entertain and, and probably welcome this sort of development to keep their own community alive, to keep yep. jobs happening in their local it's area. It's easier to be retrained within the energy sector than try and change sectors, and they can adapt. Well, but the other thing with nuclear that's very, very different from this renewable energy transmission saga that is just ongoing and, and will cost us trillions of dollars and will be, I think, ultimately a white elephant, yeah. but with nuclear you can actually sort of, for lack of a better analogy, kind of just plug it in. So where the coal fire power station connected to transmission, that's basically how nuclear operates. Ready to go. Plugged in. You do not need to rebuild transmission lines. You do not need to consume any more arable farmland, Indigenous cultural heritage sites, koala habitats. All of these things that are going on at the moment for renewable transmission lines do not need to happen with nuclear. Some of the unions are getting there. Uh, I noticed Jim Chalmers' union is endorsing it. Mm. He is still absolutely not out on the front foot on it. I think it'll be a real test, though, if over the summer or as things progress, whether someone does break ranks, and I think you're going to see it maybe from the Labor right, and maybe someone will break ranks. It may be an accidental slip-up of a of a comment um, <laughs> that starts to welcome it. I don't know. Maybe I've been in this game too long and I'm too cynical. But... <laughs> You know, as Albanese, if he does not arrest the current slide that he is on, you just might start seeing a couple of them starting to differentiate themselves uh, to put themselves out there because I don't think it's sustainable, but ideologically they are completely hell-bent and are not for turning at this stage. Yeah, and it's a huge plus for the coalition if you can get out, sell it, explain it, and speak in, you know, the latest terms in terms of the technology. One quick one before we let you go. King Charles is planning his first trip to Australia as monarch late next year. Uh, Queen Camilla is expected to accompany him for what would be the royal couple's first visit since 2018. Uh, The most recent resolved political monitor survey of support for becoming a republic conducted in the weeks after Queen Elizabeth's death found 54% of Australians said no and 46% said yes to becoming a republic. I think we're sort of off the idea of a referendum more than a republic. But anyway, how do you think they'll be greeted? 
Uh, so, look, I am an avowed monarchist and I am very excited that I am a member of parliament and are likely to be able to sit in the chamber when the king addresses the parliament. So I'm um, very excited that they've just announced that they're coming and I, I think it'll be an amazing trip and tour. Uh, I think probably the only thing that would eclipse it is maybe Wills and Kate, um, but yeah. certainly I don't think Australians are looking for a change. Uh, I know, you know, we just had Glenn on the phone, how do we change the government? Well, you know, it is at elections and, and that's what we need to do. Uh, but I think overall our system of government works very well for us and uh, I think it's fantastic that they're coming out and I think most Australians will embrace them incredibly warmly and as long as we get the pirate with his bloody bandana to stay at home and shut up, we'll be fine. <laughs> well said. Boom, boom. I'll let you get back to real business. Thank you so much for your time. Smithy. Good stuff. Uh, Liberal Party Senator for New South Wales, Senator Holly Hughes, who makes a great deal of common sense. She should be elevated beyond her calling already. Um, love hearing her not only on the program, but also in the president's chair and uh, on the floor of parliament. Must take a break. Got to get you uh, some news. And then after the news, we're going to talk about the economy. Let's do that right after a news break on TNT Radio. Here's the news. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. There were extraordinary scenes out of the US Monday night where a house exploded into a fireball during a police operation. US Senator Lindsey Graham has once again come under fire, this time for shrugging off the mounting civilian death toll in Gaza. And the families of the hostages who remain in Gaza are demanding a meeting with Israel's war cabinet, saying not enough is being done to bring their loved ones home. We're the pinup boys and poster girls for free speech. We just don't look as impressive as Vladimir Putin shirtless on a horse. We're the pinup boys and poster girls for free speech. We just don't look as impressive as Vladimir Putin shirtless on a horse. Yeah. 24 7, 365. We never stop sifting fact from fiction, misinformation from the truth. From government overreach to the latest on mandates, big tech censorship to propaganda gone mad. Listen to TNT Radio and get the news and views direct from our expert presenters and commentators anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk this is TNT Radio. A couple of quick comments from our chat box, which, of course, is on tntradio.live. You, too, can be part of the commentary there. Uh, Jackson says, F your monarchy, you stupid woman. That's a bit harsh, Jackson, but at least we know what side you're on. Uh, Alina says, it's also important to remember that lithium and other precious metal mining for these batteries are creating an environmental disaster and we still need coal even for the e-cars. Political opposition need to talk about that if they really care about the environment. The political opposition right now in Australia is on a winner with nuclear and they should ram that Cadillac home. Um, one here from Pelly. It looks like the government has let the criminals out of detention and the PM and his ministers have gone into detention so they can hide. Yeah, they're nowhere to be seen. Nowhere. Anthony Albanese doesn't want to answer questions today because the questions would be too difficult. Um, and one here from Chris. Uh, King Big Ears, I guess this is Jim Chalmers, has made the biggest case for a republic, and I'm a British expat. He is a WEF puppet intent on reducing global population with his mates Klaus and Bill. All right. Dr. Natalia Ilhul. 
Ilushina is an economist and a res- you know how many times I practiced that this morning uh, is an economist and a research fellow at the Blockchain Innovation Hub at RMIT University. Um, Natalia, of course, for those who don't know, has a PhD in economics, uh, and her qualifications include a master's of economics from Melbourne University, a double degree master's of professional accounting and commerce from RMIT University, and a bachelor of economics from Moscow State University. How's that for academia for you? But she's a very practical person as well. And I wanted to bring her in today because there are so many issues to discuss about finance and the economies of the world. Natalia, welcome to the program. Welcome to TNT Radio. Thanks for a great introduction. <laughs> yes, sorry, Ilushina. I, I said it 150 <laughs> times earlier without um, Now happens to the best of us. <laughs> yes, all right. You couldn't have had a good surname like Smith, you see. No one gets that wrong. No <laughs> one gets that wrong. So we've had a crucial decision handed down by the Reserve Bank of Australia two hours ago. They have not moved our interest rates. They're sitting at 4.35% as predicted, but is the worst over or not? That was quite a surprise decision because all the talks and all the commentaries were in favour of increasing interest rate again. So I do not think the worst is over. They're just giving us a breather over Christmas. And the second reason is the uh, if they announced another increase in interest rate, that would have uh, had a huge impact on the Boxing Day sales and therefore on retailers. Right. Now, that's what they've got to take into consideration. However, I did most of my Christmas shopping on Black Friday, and a lot of people may be getting into that uh, culture, that shopping culture. It's new to Australia. It's not new to our American audience. So what are the expectations for Christmas consumer spending for December, considering that many people are now shopping on Black Friday for their special sales? Yeah, Black Friday actually became unexpectedly successful in Australia. And last year, it almost overtook a Boxing Day sales amounts. And this year, um, Black Friday sales reported 6% increase on last year um, experience. And even that, I think, is underestimated because how they measure it, they measure it over the four-day uh, weekend. Um, but in fact, Black Friday sales usually start a week or two before. Yeah. So, um and given the interest rate expectations, I think that's what, to the extent, driven the uh, huge demand on Black Friday sales as a last last opportunity to actually shop before interest rates shoots up and before further inflation hits us. Okay. So one of the things that will make for a very good Boxing Day will be today's decision. And is that something that the RBA sits down and thinks about, is it? Absolutely. So uh, when Australia Bureau of Statistics calculates the inflation, which is what uh, Reserve Bank makes the most of their decisions about the uh, interest rates on, um, they do factor in uh, the sales right. and they do factor in the spendings and that's an indication of how much people spend. What I was worried about is that the success of Black Friday sale sales will be taken as an indication of people uh, spending power or still excessive savings that they have on their hands. But fortunately, uh, throughout the reports and media, there were uh, an array of opinion and the complexity of the opinions that people will try to make their Christmas shopping, bring it forward to Black Friday sale and take it as an opportunity to make smart financial decisions rather than an indication of them uh, splurging money right and left. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it stops you splurging just because it's a, at the 11th hour. Westpac has had a major outage overnight, Natalia. Um, customers were caught out right across the country. What is it about our finance and our telecommunications companies that they are so brittle in the modern era? And, and we expect a little bit more, don't we? Absolutely. So we had a quite a big la- last four weeks on the cybersecurity incident side. Yeah, exactly. You correctly pointed out the Optus was a big outage now Westpac. Yeah. But what we're forgetting that was in between was a, a DP World Shipping Company. And that while while say Optus incident and Westpac last night, these sort of outages uh, they have a short-term impact in terms of like on the customers. Mm. Uh, they they get they might not be able to do some transactions last night, but this stays in that hour. What yeah. what was overlooked about the DP World cybersecurity incident, for example, is that it affects a whole supply chain. And I spoke to a few uh, businessmen, and they said that they might not get their stock in for Christmas. Because that that stuff that you know when they sell something for Christmas and it has a merchandise um, yeah. embellishments on them or something um, that that was that was on those ships that was stuck. Uh-huh. And um, to your question, what is going to continue? So what we are portraying ourselves as a nation, as a country, we are quite an unreliable trading partner in terms of maintaining critical infrastructure. Mm. And for some reason, government thinks when they talk about critical infrastructure, they often predominantly mean roads and electricity lines. But we forgetting how much we are relying on the um, internet and all the digital stuff, and that's that's what keeps happening. We don't have roads sh- being shut down that often, as we have uh, outages and all, all sorts. Yeah, very true. We become unreliable to those who want to trade with us from around the world. Um, there was a decision in the Fair Work Commission recently, and I covered it here, which found against a man who wanted to work from home 100% of the time, and that went into gory details about his mm. uh, health problems. <laughs> um, while the, Yes, very gory. While the ruling will have an impact on similar workforce standoffs over working from home, I'm sure it will, Tell us about the complete opposite ruling handed down for Australian public servants. Yes, that's a very interesting topic because the extent how this poor man got covered and his name was tossed around right and left for like a week in the media uh, is sensational. While um, six months ago, the Community and Public Sector Union uh, had a ruling about the public sector expectations on work from home and uh, that we, many people don't realize that Fair Work Commission only covers private sector companies and their uh-huh. relationships in the workplace. Um, so when we talk about public sector, so anything that has APS, Australian public sector uh, code on it, they are responsible to community public sector union. And in July, they ruled that uh, if you are a public servant, you uh, don't have any cap on work days you can work from home no cap so you could work the entire the entire week or fortnight it says that you still need to request the flexible work arrangements but there is very limited room to reject it and there's bias towards a yes so what we effectively have is that recent fair work commission sets a default for private sector 
employees to work from the office and then they have to argue um, with the employee and defend themselves. While if you're a public sector servant, you just need to ask and they need to defend their position. Why not? Wow. And um, that's that's as an economist, I don't have much explanation to that because <laughs> when I go, when if you go into research, at least which jobs can be done from home, which are not, and financial sector is a top industry where jobs can be done remotely with the minimum loss of productivity, sure. which actually that case with the Dadalit man belongs to. So public sector jobs should be, uh, if, if that's the top job that could have been done from home, so public sector jobs should be after that. But uh, for if, if this uh, man was working for the government, he wouldn't have to explain his health problems to anybody. And neither he would have been, that would have been discussed on the media. And as I said, that wasn't much covered in the media back then in July. And that was actually in July when there was a first, f- f- first push uh, back to the office from the Commonwealth Bank. Um, uh, yeah. that, that's when this whole story started. And speaking about caps on not work uh, working from home, so while you don't have caps on days working from home in a public sector, at the same time, just recently, ANZ Bank started entertaining the idea that people who don't attend the necessary days work from the office will get a pay cut. <laughs> That's just incredible. You know, we, we 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 lack in this country, we lack good productivity change, a positive productivity move. And yet we tend to make decisions about wages and hours spent in the office and days in lieu and all those sorts of benefits. We we, we do everything we can to make sure we don't increase productivity. What's wrong with us? Oh, productivity in Australia has been falling for good. 20 or 30 years, Productivity Commission recently reported. And uh, yeah, exactly. That's the last thing that's being addressed. Again, when we, we just spoke about interest rates and inflation, right? And we all blame people spending too much. We're not earning enough. We're not producing enough. No. If if there was enough goods and services produced, the amount of money in circulation would not have been causing inflation and never would have been a problem. Yeah. Yeah, so true. Great analysis. One final thing before we let you go, and it's not the least of what we're talking about. There's a new report out from the Pew Research Group in the United States, which calculates who the winners and losers were during the pandemic. I'd be interested to know just a very quick summary of what they found, but also in an Australian context as well. Uh, interestingly, the findings overall are quite similar to the trends we observe in Australia. So in America, they report that there's basically richer, richer got richer. Asians and white households who are homeowners and who paid off their houses are winning. Uh-huh. Um, however, they said that um, Hispanics and blacks are, um, still improved their, their wealth, not as much to get them out of debt. Right. Um, and interestingly, in Australia, it looks like uh, we we are actually driving a wedge between rich richest and the poorest. The some reports show that Australia's billionaires became fifty percent richest in the first year of pandemic. Whoa! Well, now we and who are the losers? I I believe it's the um, millennials generation. So there is not so much. Um, 
likely we don't have that much racial uh, division in terms of socioeconomic status in Australia yeah. uh, as they do in the United States. So we yeah. are definitely lucky in that sense. But we uh, had the highest decrease in the standards of living in all OECD countries. And I do believe, yes, millennials who are either trying to get into housing market or recently bought the house uh, because during COVID policies and right now, all support is targeted to people who are renting. You can still get rent assist. You get yeah. nothing for paying mortgage. Yes, exactly. Your mortgage repayments, that, but it just will throw you back to square one and you have to pay it later. All those people who are sitting on mortgages, which is about, what is it, 34% or 36%, yes, 37 percent of Australians, gee, they're copying it. They copped it during the pandemic, as you rightly said, and they're copying it now because they're the ones that are having to pay for inflation. And what is it for Australian dream of owning a house? Yeah, yeah. It's not a dream anymore. It's a hope. It's a, it's a nightmare now. <laughs> Correct. Well said. Well said. Leave us alone. Thank you so much for your time, Natalia. Great to get your analysis on the program today. We'll catch up again. Dr. Natalia Ilushina, uh, the uh, economist and uh, also blockchain innovation hub research fellow at RMIT University. A great rundown. Interesting to hear who benefited and didn't benefit both in Australia and the United States during the pandemic. Good rundown of all of that. And just repeating, if you haven't heard, interest rates on hold in Australia, 4.35%. Because unlike in the United States, um, when we sign a mortgage for our house and we have to pay it off, it's up to the Reserve Bank uh, with their interest rates on banks, the price of cash, which dictates whether our interest rate on our mortgage changes or not. We wish we had the same system as the US, but we don't. So each and every decision that's made every month is one that we chew our fingernails about if we own and if we have a mortgage at the time. But they are being punched senseless at the moment. Got to take a break and uh, quite happy to take your calls on our talkback lines, by the way, from the United States or Canada, one 201 uh, from the UK, 033-0024-1026. And from Australia or New Zealand, 1-800-670-310. This is Chris Smith on TNT Radio. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. Well, of course, the biggest story in climate right now is Vice President Kamala Harris leaves for the climate conference with the biggest carbon footprint in history. She's heading to Abu Dhabi or whatever for COP28 in Joe's place with hosts under fire for wanting to push oil and gas deals. Do you know why there's so many people there? Because they realize what a scam this is and they're trying to push oil and gas deals. Anyway, she left and there's 400,000 people expected there. Now, do you really believe that there's 400,000 people are all interested in eliminating fossil fuels? I would say there are quite a few of them, given Abu Dhabi is in the Middle East and there's a lot of oil in the Middle East, that are seeking to do business because they know what a scam this is. And let's see, at its head, Sultan Al-Jabbar has denied reports he's using meetings at the summit to make side deals on fossil fuels produced by the United Arab Emirates. I'm sure he's smart enough to probably be doing that. 
This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather, even if we can't go over to Abu Dhabi, because it's the only weather you got. There are 16 million children struggling with hunger in America. That's one in five daughters, sons, neighbors, and classmates who don't know where their next meal is coming from. Yet billions of pounds of good food go to waste every year. It's time we do something about it. Feeding America is a nationwide network of food banks that helps provide meals to millions of kids and families in need. Visit feedingamerica.org to help them feed even more. Together, we can solve hunger. Together, we're Feeding America. Where the story goes, we follow. Chris Smith on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. So much to tell you about, so little time to do so. I just want to refer to our chat box for a second because some really interesting comments uh, by a number of our listeners on what we had to say. Oh, Jackson's come back. I called Jackson harsh because he wanted a republic and he was very, very harsh towards Holly Hughes, the senator. Um, but he's come back and said, you're a legend, Chris. That's okay. We're mates again, Jackson. It's all good. <laughs> Lou says... Quite an education. Have you ever run a business? That's Lou from Canberra. Um, Nev says, uh, it looks like uh, Nev is having a fight with Chris Slater, who's one of our chat box uh, commentators. Yeah, they're having a bit of an argument about uh, various cultures in various nations and why they want to come to Australia. Pelly says, this inflation is a result of all the free money handed out during the scam called COVID-19. Well, there's no doubt that when we handed out such free money to sit on our backside, we did so with um, a great deal of trepidation. I'm not saying the government was uh, had a deal of trepidation, but as a country, there should have been a great deal of trepidation about what we were doing because it was extending inflation following the pandemic for years to come. Pelly's exactly right. We are suffering from that massive handout during that time where people therefore added to their savings and are now spending it. And who takes the heat for all of that? The 37% of Australians only who are owner mortgage holders. And I don't believe at any time, and I'm not an economist, but I've done all the economics that most people do in high school, and I don't know that by punishing 37% of the public, you create a wave that pushes down inflation. I don't think it works. I think it's a waste of time. Inflation comes down for many, many other reasons, not because a minority of the population cops it hard in terms of paying more for their mortgages and therefore can't spend too much. That's just my view on uh, all of that. Now, I've always said that we're going to spend trillions and trillions of dollars by the sound of COP28 to increase renewables, which, of course, aren't the cheapest form of power, not when you consider transmission lines, uh, the amount of power it costs and we need to create the turbines, when we consider all the setup costs of creating an offshore process like an offshore wind farm, when you cook. Consider all of that. Forget about the fact that the sun's free and the wind's free. It is not the most, the, not the cheapest form of power. So what do we do? We try and tell countries to increase their nuclear power as well. So we spend all this money. And do you really think we're going to change the temperature of the planet? Do you really think so? 
when you've got volcanoes going off, when the population increases in some of the most populous nations in the world, like India and China, do you really think we're going to change the temperature of the planet? Well, not in countries like Australia. It may happen, according to some scientists, in places like if China and India and the United States do their bit, maybe. I'm incredibly sceptical about that rubbish, incredibly sceptical. I don't think the temperature of the planet can be changed by man, no matter what man does. I don't believe that for a second. And I don't believe that spending trillions and trillions of dollars all of a sudden comes up with the answer. And have a listen to this. I reckon this news from the ABC backs up exactly what I'm saying. Global carbon emissions from fossil fuels have increased over the past year, despite most of the world committing to net zero targets, according to new research. What does that tell you? That we're going down a track that doesn't produce any results. If, of course, we're supposed to produce less CO2 to change the temperature of the planet. Well, if you go ahead with the IPCC theory here, it's not working. The Global Carbon Project releases its carbon budget each year, with this year's figures showing a 1.1% increase in emissions across the world. Hold on a second. Aren't we absolutely infatuated with the global boiling religion? Aren't we becoming evangelists right across the world? That's why some of the governments are getting into power, because we're convinced that we've got to save the planet from all countries of the world by reducing CO2. So why isn't it changing? Why are emissions increasing? The report found there was no sign of the rapid and deep decrease to total emissions needed to prevent dangerous climate change. But as I understand it, all the scientific climate change models, the climatologists who think they know everything and don't want to be questioned, I thought that they said we would reduce our emissions, sorry, we would reduce the temperature of the planet and we would commit to net zero, and that would result in less CO2 being emitted. I thought that was the plan. I thought that's what we're doing. That's why we're spending the trillions of dollars right around the world. But it's not working. It's not working at all. Can you believe this? CSIRO Chief Research Scientist and Executive Director of the Global Carbon Project, Pep Cannondale, this is a an Australian science agency, said despite a slowdown in emissions growth, the world was not moving fast enough to reduce emissions. So they say things like, let's triple our renewables. That sounds awfully scientific, doesn't it? <laughs> let's triple our renewables. Oh, dear. And you wonder why we shake our heads on programs like this and think to ourselves, we are fritting away our wealth. We're frittering away what we've built up in Western countries. We're also frittering away our ability to help developed and third world countries by ridding ourselves of wealth. But all of a sudden, everyone is sucked in to this global boiling mantra, this evangelism. You can't question it. You're seen as some kind of heretic if you question it. And yet, look what's happened. The year's scorecard says we have not reduced emissions. And yet you think about all the things that have changed. You think about the numerous coal-fired power stations that have been closing down and been blown up afterwards. 
You think about what we've done in terms of renewables, spent trillion subsidies through the roof, billions and billions and billions of dollars in subsidies. For what? Zero. Worse than zero, our emissions have only increased. I'm sorry. If that's not an example of what I'm saying, that is, we should be sceptical about this whole whole theory. I don't know what is good evidence, but that is. I've got to get out of here. I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of the one and only Dean Macken. Uh, and also after him, Lembit Opic, followed by Katie Hopkins. Plenty more to come. Don't go anywhere. This is Chris Smith. We'll catch up at the same time tomorrow on TNT Radio.